Good morning. Again, if you're visiting, my name is Nick, and I pastor Redemption Church, which is a daughter campus of Trinity down in Palos Heights, and it's good to be with you this morning. And in keeping with the season, we are looking at this text, one of those famous places in Scripture that surrounds the birth of Jesus. In fact, this song of Zechariah is so marvelous that in certain Christian traditions, it's included in the order of daily prayer every single day, all year. So let's ask for God's blessing while we look to this passage together. Lord, we thank you for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are the heirs of a magnificent story a magnificent history of, of mercy. And we ask that you, in these few moments we have together, would lift our eyes to Jesus in a fresh way. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Is this a little hot? Should I move this away from my mouth a little bit? Y'all all right? I'm not blasting your ears out too much. I'm, okay. Well, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the soul singer Nina Simone. She was a legendary pianist and singer, especially in the 70s. She was also beset by mental illness and a great deal of, uh, a great many trials that flowed out of that. One of her most legendary songs is a song called, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. And in a documentary that was made about her, the man interviewing Nina Simone asked her, because of that song, what does freedom mean to you? And she replied, I mean, and how, how do you answer that? That profound of a question off the cuff, how would you answer that? You know, what does freedom mean to you? And so she struggled at first. She said, what does freedom mean to me? Same thing it means to you, you tell me. It's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. And then suddenly she said, I'll tell you what freedom means to me. No fear. I mean, really, no fear. And the look on her face in the documentary is, is one of a person having an epiphany that this indeed is what freedom is, having no fear. That's a profound kind of off-the-cuff response to give. We don't typically think of ourselves as people who lack in freedom because we live in a relatively free society uh, for which we should all be grateful, but nobody in this room is wholly free from fear. We fear all kinds of things. We fear people's opinions of us. If we're parents, we're afraid about how our children are going to turn out. If we're grandparents, we're afraid of how our grandchildren are going to turn out. We're afraid of economic downturn. We're afraid of cultural shifts. We're afraid of, some of us, maybe a future digital dystopia and climate crisis. We're afraid of all sorts of things. We live in an adversarial world. And there are threats everywhere. And we are given this song in Scripture in order that we might lift our eyes to Jesus so that fear loses its grip on us. That we might serve him without fear. So 
I want to look together at this song, which Zechariah, who was high priest in Israel at the time, just sort of blurted out after being mute for nine months. If you're not familiar with the story, you should go back and read it. But because he's overjoyed, because he and his wife are having a child, and this is not just any child, this is a child who has this special vocation that had been promised of going before the Messiah to turn the hearts of God's people toward God so they would be ready to receive the Messiah in a fresh way. As we, as we look at this together, I think we can essentially boil down this deliverance from fear into two different categories to examine together. Salvation from enemies and salvation from sin. These lay the, the, the groundwork of why the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago has the power to free us from fear today. So we'll look at these both in turn. Starting with salvation from enemies, which might be harder for us to wrap our heads around than salvation from sin. I mean, probably everybody has somebody who you feel like is, has some sort of animus towards you in your life. Most of us have experienced, all of us have experienced some measure of hostility from people. But we don't know, at least most of us, what it is like to live under the thumb of enemies in quite the same way that some of the writers in the Bible do. But thinking of God's salvation in terms of deliverance from enemies is a theme that rings out from so many of the pages of Scripture. For, for Zechariah, the great primary redemptive event that he would have looked back to was the Exodus. Sort of defining moment in which the Lord had delivered his people, the Israelites, from their enemies. He would have been probably, he probably not just well versed, he would have probably memorized the book of Psalms, which is given to God's people to shape our worship and show us how to relate to God. Psalms that include this one, Psalm 3, which even though it's going to another passage, I want to read the whole thing. Because I want us to have before us some sort of sense of how central deliverance from enemies is in, in biblical faith and practice. Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So even if this is sort of on the surface hard for us to relate to, it's good for us to start by recognizing that we are meant to be people who sing Psalm 3, who sing of salvation from enemies. The people of Israel at this point in time where Zechariah spoke when Zechariah spoke these words, we're currently live, living under the oppression of an occupying force, the Romans. Every 
moment was lived in the knowledge that they were not free. That they were surrounded by enemies who inhabited their land and ruled over them. And that's why this psalm, in part, of Zechariah is just shot through with language of God giving his people triumph over his enemies. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's battle language, raising up a horn of salvation. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteous all our days. Verse 74, and we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. I want to help us observe a couple aspects of this salvation from enemies that Zechariah is singing about. And the first, just briefly, is that this salvation from enemies to Zechariah, it's absolutely certain. Even though it has not yet been fully realized. Do you see that he's speaking all in the past tense? He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He has shown the mercy promised to our fathers that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness, that we being delivered. And yet the enemies were not yet vanquished. And what Zechariah is doing is he is demonstrating his full certainty that in the future God will bring all of his promises to fulfillment by speaking as though it's already taken place. Even when contrary to all appearances. It's like when a chess grandmaster sacrifices piece after piece after piece till he or she has barely any material left on the board, but all in service of a plan to achieve an absolutely stunning and ruthless checkmate at the end in order to vanquish the enemy on a chessboard where the stakes are not obviously as high. So there, there's this certainty about it. Also, it's helpful for us to see how sort of earthly this salvation is that Zechariah sings about. Certainly given his history as a Jew thinking about salvation from their slave masters in the Exodus. Thinking about the history of the judges when God constantly raised up judges to deliver Israel from her enemies. Thinking of the promises and the prophets to restore Jerusalem. Zechariah was thinking about real flesh and blood enemies that this Messiah was going to deliver him from. What do you make of that? The reason I ask is because sometimes we speak this way about the coming of Jesus and the dynamic that existed as some of God's people rejected him and some embraced him. Sometimes we say something like this. Many of the Jews of Jesus' day wanted an earthly salvation to deliver them from the Romans. But Jesus came to bring spiritual salvation, and they misunderstood him. But actually, that's wrong. Because Zechariah is singing about an earthly salvation from oppressors. 
the problems that led some to reject Jesus did not have anything to do with Jesus not bringing an earthly salvation. Because as the story of Scripture unfolds, that's exactly what he came to bring. And it's exactly what he will bring when he comes again. And makes all things new. And all his enemies are made his footstool. The trouble was that when Jesus came, he showed a path to glory that went through suffering first. And that challenged, challenges our self-righteousness. That's why the resistance came. That's why the resistance to Jesus still comes. Because we don't want glory through suffering, we just want glory. And because we don't want glory through humility, we want to keep our egos intact. So there's, a, there's this very earthly, flesh and blood, dust of the street sort of salvation that Zechariah sings about. Now, for many of our brothers and sisters in the world, it's much more easy to relate to singing of God's salvation in this way. It was in the news just this week. Some of you probably saw. This is from, from one major news source. Islamic State group in Nigeria reportedly executes Christian hostages. And this group, uh, apparently in retaliation for the United States killing of the ISIS leader, al-Baghdadi, uh, took 11 or 12, the reports vary, Christian men and videoed an absolutely grotesque and brutal execution of them and released it. Today we have, even right now, surely, brothers and sisters in Nigeria wondering if they are next, reading this text and looking for strength crying out, Lord, help us to serve you without fear. Quite possibly, 10 miles east of us, on the west side of Chicago, there is a child whose path to school every day brings her through dangerous territory, who is possibly hearing this passage read and saying, Lord, Deliver me from the hand of my enemies. And so all of us can join in singing this song at least to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who, who feel the need for this sort of salvation more acutely than maybe some of us do. But even for us, who maybe, and your life might not uh, fit this description, but, but who maybe live a more quiet life where the, uh, the dangers are less apparent. Every single one of us has an enemy that is trying to destroy our faith, our families, our congregations, every moment of every day. And I want to suggest to you that when we experience the sorts of fear that I just kind of rattled off at the beginning, fear of others' opinions, fear of a changing culture, fear of financial instability in the future, actually, fear of enemies is at the root of much of this. Why would I say that? 
uh, Don Guthrie is a ruling elder in our presbytery, and he once conducted a study of the region around a church that he used to be a member of in St. Louis before he lived up this way. A church in a, a very nice affluent area in West County, St. Louis. It's where a lot of the money is. And one of the questions, they, they did a survey of just their neighbors in like a five-mile radius around the church. And one of the questions they asked people was, what is your greatest fear? And the answer in this incredibly affluent area was long-term financial stability. I want to ask you, if, if you're like me, you're very capable of being afraid of uh, concerning your long-term financial stability. What is the connection between fear about money and fear of enemies? Because there's a link. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verses 5 through 6. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Track with the flow of thought and how this links to what we're saying this morning from Luke about fear of enemies. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, don't love money. Why? Because God has promised he will never leave you and man therefore cannot do anything ultimately to harm you. And what that means is that when we're afraid about our finances, we're actually afraid about what other people will do to us. Because it is people who will keep us from getting the things we think we need if we lack money adequately. You know, it is people who can give you a bad credit score. It is people who can blow up the stock market and wipe out your 401k. Our anxiety about money is actually an anxiety about enemies. My point in, in sort of trying to wind us around to this is to understand that the reason we are filled with so much fear, one of the reasons we are filled with so much fear, is because we live in a profoundly adversarial world where we often have the sense that nobody is looking out for me. The world, if it has its way, will cut me to pieces. Whether it is the person shaming me on social media, or the person who blows up my retirement account. We live in a world where humankind is not a safe race to live in the midst of. And therefore, even if we live a quiet, peaceful life in a nice community, we need to learn how to sing of the Lord's deliverance from enemies. Because there is coming a day when there will be no more. There will be no more gangs. There will be no more abusers even in nice neighborhoods. There will be no more traffickers. There will be no more identity thieves. There will be no economies being wiped out because of reckless human behavior. There will be no more mass shooters. There will be no more foreclosures or bad credit scores. Because Jesus has come. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will save us from our enemies. So that's one aspect of the salvation that Jesus gives us in order to save us from fear. 
deliverance from enemies. The other aspect of the salvation to, to observe briefly is that he brings us salvation from sin. In verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, Zechariah, who sang this, he was high priest of the Jews, so sin was a part of his understanding of the world. It wasn't hard for him to sense his need and his people's need for the forgiveness of sins. It's harder for us. It's harder for our more secular and skeptical neighbors, but our mindset has very much in common with theirs. We breathe the same air, we drink the same water. And so we stand in church together, we confess in the creed, as we did today, that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, that there is a judgment coming for sins. And we declare that we forgive in the forgiveness of sins. This is the core of our faith, that this story of a baby coming doesn't just end with a pleasant scene in a manger. It moves to a cross where Jesus Christ dies for his enemies and cries out, it is finished, so that the shame of our sin having been removed from us and placed on him can be forgiven when we come to him in repentance and faith. And it ends in him triumphing over the grave in his resurrection. But his, it is hard for us to sort of move through the world and to understand in an acute way, the way Zechariah did as he declared these words, the gravity of sin in biblical terms. But I want to suggest to you that even our most skeptical and secular neighbors, and even us in our most maybe skeptical moments of doubt, those of us who are Christians, we know that there is a need for forgiveness of sins. And in fact, it seems to me to become more obvious that we intuitively know this all the time as our culture moves further and further into what people are now referring to as outrage culture. Where people kind of on the left and the right are just furious all the time at the sins of other people, kind of in the opposite tribe, and even at their own people, kind of on their own side of the culture war when one makes just the tiniest little gaffe and violates the purity of his or her position in the slightest way. We believe in sin, at least we believe in other people's, and we try to hide our own. Because sin is, is just the reality of having something wrong with us, of not being what we're meant to be, of falling short, of overstepping the line, and of therefore having at very real shame that we do not want to be exposed. And this diagnosis, it makes sense of our world. When we refuse to acknowledge that we are a, a, a people who are sinful before a holy God, we lose the ability to make sense of our world. I remember years ago, I used to have a job managing a group home for adult men with developmental disabilities. And I and some of the other leaders of the organization were sent by our boss to go to a seminar at a local university about how to prevent abuse in the disabled population. Because as you can imagine, if you think of it, the, the statistics, the
the numbers of developmentally disabled adults who experience abuse at the hands of caregivers at some point in their life are just nauseating and staggering because they're vulnerable people. Some of them don't have the verbal capability to report what's happened. And so I remember watching the presenter who uh, was, was talking about practical ways to train staff and to have accountability and to prevent abuse. And it was clear that he was passionate about this task. And it was also clear that the pervasiveness of abuse among disabled people, it didn't merely grieve him. It didn't merely outrage him. It perplexed him. I remember him saying, I don't know why this happens. Because I'm proud of our, our field of work. I'm proud of all the things we have done in the world of social work and caregiving to improve the lives of the people we care for. And I am proud of so many of the wonderful men and women I work with who do such a marvelous job caring for these people. And so I just, I don't know how to understand the statistics that I'm presenting to you. It's not that having a, a biblical understanding of sin takes the suffering or the pain away. But it helps us account for why human beings are simultaneously so full of glory and shame. It makes sense of what we intuitively know to be true. But we need to see in this passage, finally, that salvation from sin, it's not only something we desperately need, because we are sinners before a holy God who will stand before him in judgment. But forgiveness of sins is so gladly and freely and joyfully given by God. Forgiveness of sins is a gift that is not simply a transaction in which God cancels a debt, although it is that, but it's not merely that. Look at the sort of the covenantal language that is shot through this passage. Zechariah doesn't just praise God in verse 58. He says, blessed be the God of Israel. The God who has covenantally married himself to a particular people. And for the majority in this room who are not Jews, who are Gentiles, the good news for us is that those blessings spill out and splash over the nations of the world as well as we come to Israel's Messiah. This, these promises, uh, this horn of salvation has been raised up in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. These are old promises coming true that God has bound himself to. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. In verse 73. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. That we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. And in verse 78. Or, uh, sorry, back up. In verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of his sins. Why? Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The tender mercy of our God. To those who live in, not only to those who live in the shadow of death, but to those who live in a self-imposed shadow of death. Who, because of our sin, have willingly walked into the shadow of death. It is upon such people that God shows tender mercy in order to shine his light on us in Jesus Christ. I am the father of three young boys, ages three, six, and eight. And what that means, among other things, is I get frequent opportunities to extend forgiveness. And when I do so, when one of my children has required forgiveness, and I have confronted him about it, and he maybe has lost his mind and wept and cried and tantrumed and says sorry, and even if the sorry is a little imperfect, I am so quick to tell him, I forgive you. Even though, yes, I just removed you from the situation where you were misbehaving and brought you to your room until you could calm down, even though you've been under my hand of discipline, very moment you turn to me in repentance, so to speak, I, I am just so eager for you to know that I so gladly forgive you without any grudge. Because all I want is for our relationship to be restored and to be peaceable. Some of you, maybe who have been Christians for a long time, have an easy time confessing the words and the creeds, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And you can maybe even wrap your head around in a sort of transactional sense, well, because Jesus died for me, there's not going to be double jeopardy, so God forgives me. I won't go to hell. You can wrap your head around the forgiveness of sins, but it's harder for us to wrap our heads around the fact that God smiles on you in Christ. That his disposition towards you is one of tender mercies. If our hearts could wrap themselves around this more, how much would fear lose its grip on us? So where we've been in looking at this song of Zechariah together is two places. One, we've looked at the, the reality of, of, of living a life in a world full of enemies and of living lives as fallen people who have sins that need forgiveness. And we have hopefully started to sing along with Zechariah of the Lord Jesus Christ's deliverance of us from both, from our enemies and from our sins. And do you see Many of us have a sort of disposition towards God in terms of our fear where we say, fix it first, and then I can let my fear go. We are invited to sing along with Zechariah in confidence that there is a long history of salvation that has been going on for centuries and centuries 
and it will come to its consummation. And fear does not need to dominate us, even before the time when the story reaches its climax. The second thing we like to say to God is, explain it first. Help me understand the problem of evil. Help me understand the mystery of human suffering. And then I can trust you. Zechariah doesn't get any solutions to that either. He hasn't reasoned his way to hope, philosophically or apologetically. He has simply recounted the saving deeds of the Lord in history and set his eyes on the sure hope that they will continue. So brothers and sisters, what the coming of Christ means is that we actually today have the capacity to serve God without fear. Let's pray together. We take some time every week to confess our sins before the Lord. And because of what we've just heard, we can know that going to God with our sin is actually the only safe place to go. So let's pray together quietly, and then I will lead us in a prayer of confession. Lord, I confess before my brothers and sisters that I often make peace with fear and assume it as a norm rather than as a vanquished enemy that I can resist. Help us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve you without fear. We pray in him. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear this good news of the gospel, providing assurance to all who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. From the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed and you are adopted as children of God. Thanks be to God. Our brother Ted is going to come now and lead us in coming to the table together.